Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. It's not always reasonable, but sometimes you just need someone else to blame for your misfortune. Those in power almost never claim responsibility for what happens to them, and instead lay that responsibility at the feet of others. That was the route taken by Boris Godunov. Boris was a regent, someone appointed to govern in the event the next monarch in line was a minor or unable to reign. He had been appointed to watch over Dmitry Vasilyevich, the son of Ivan Vasilyevich, also known to us as Ivan the Terrible. Dmitry would have been destined to take over for his father, but he was an infant, and he had an older brother, Feodor. Boris had been a member of Ivan's council in the years leading up to his death, and had been tasked with helping guide Feodor in leading Russia after his father was gone. But the young man was unfit to rule, both mentally and physically. He was weak, and Dmitry was too young. That left Boris to rule as acting czar until Dmitry came of age. But Boris noticed something unsettling about the young Dmitry. He was smart. It wouldn't be long before he was old enough to sit on the throne of his late father, thus taking all of Boris's power with him. The ambitious regent couldn't let that happen, and so he had the boy and his mother exiled to a small town in western Russia. Out of sight, out of mind. The two Vasilyeviks lived there for several years, waiting until the boy was old enough to return to the palace where he would follow in his father's footsteps. It's just too bad he'd never see the throne. In 1591, while Dmitri was only eight years old, he was found dead with a knife wound in his throat. This being Russia in the late 16th century, the initial thought was foul play had been involved. As such, Dmitri's mother had the town church bells rung, alerting the town to what had happened and gathering them together. A rebellion had been started. The target of their anger? Boris. Dmitri's mother knew who was behind the killing and why he'd done it. It was a preemptive measure to ensure his place at the top of the Russian royalty. But the Tsar was ready. He first denied responsibility for Dmitri's death, claiming the boy had been playing with knives before suffering from a mysterious seizure. The boy had simply impaled himself on one of them in a tragic accident. And yeah, that didn't sound right to the residents of the town, either. Second, Boris had a whole army at his disposal, and the little village did not, so he sent a small group of troops to take care of the rebellion before it could even get going. The soldiers moved swiftly, successfully taking back the town and killing most of the townsfolk. Those who weren't killed, including Dmitri's mother, were all exiled to Siberia. But Boris still wasn't satisfied. There was one other party that had been involved in organizing the rebellion, and he wanted to punish them too, to make an example of them. First, he had their tongue cut out, and then he exiled them to Siberia with the surviving townsfolk. Except this wasn't a person. It was the church bell that had riled everyone up in the first place. It hadn't been enough for Boris to wipe out the town. He wanted every last shred of evidence of the rebellion removed, and that included the accursed bell. In the years following his death, Dmitri was sainted, and roughly 100 years after that, a new church was erected on the site where he was killed. The bell, however, would remain in exile for almost 300 years before finally returning home. 
Today the bell is on display at the Church of Prince Dimitri on Blood, where it's rung regularly, its bright, loud tone singing out for everyone to hear. And thankfully, it hasn't started any new rebellions since its return. Despite the collections we have of artifacts and fossils spanning millions of years, we still don't know a whole lot about early civilizations. We deduce and make inferences based on what we find, such as pottery and gravesites, but we still have much to learn about how ancient cultures truly lived, especially when they leave behind things that aren't so easily explained. Russian archaeologists found such an object in 1999 while working in the Ural Mountains, It was a slab of stone nearly five feet tall and three and a half feet wide. It also weighed a ton, literally. It's called the Dashka Stone, or the Map of the Creator, and one scientist believes it could be over 120 million years old. That, in and of itself, isn't so odd. We have fossils dating back billions of years. What sets the Dashka Stone apart from other artifacts are its structure and what it represents. The slab is made up of three layers. The first is a seven-inch layer of a compound with a dolomite base. The middle layer is an inch thick and made up of a diopside glass and silicone. And the top is only a few millimeters of calcium mixed with porcelain. This kind of layering doesn't happen in nature. Someone, they think, had to make it. On its surface is a series of lines intersecting at various points. These lines were etched with some kind of primitive tool. Cartographers from Russia and China looked more closely at the lines and noticed how similar they looked to a particular area in the Ural Mountains known as Bashkira. The accuracy was uncanny. What archaeologists had found wasn't just a slab with pictures on it. It was a topographical map, one drawn with a bird's-eye view of the mountains. There were also lines representing waterways and dams, Undecipherable inscriptions adorn the sides of the stone as well. Now, naturally, they didn't have drones back then, or even airplanes, so how could an ancient civilization depict such a precise image of the mountains without help? That's what has baffled scientists since the stone's discovery. However, the claim that it's 120 million years old doesn't sit well with everyone. Some scientists get hung up on the fossils that were found within the slab. One was dated to 120 million years ago, while the other is about 500 million years old. That makes dating the map more difficult. That's because Homo habilis, who lived roughly 2.8 million years ago, is one of the earliest species that has left us evidence that they use stone tools. To say that this map was created 118 million years earlier, well before humans evolved enough to fashion rocks and sticks into makeshift hammers and chisels, does seem a bit far-fetched. What the map does illustrate, aside from the Ural Mountains, is that the area was home to an advanced civilization that had figured out how to see the world from high above, something no one else could do at the time. They didn't draw any roads on the map, since none existed, but they did learn how to navigate the nearby rivers and streams to get to different places. There's also the possibility that there might be more than one map. According to some reports, there may be as many as 200 similar stones in existence. None of the other slabs have been found yet, though. For now, scientists, cartographers, and archaeologists only have that one stone to perform their research on. 
but there's a lot that single stone can teach us. It also opens up the possibility that what we think we know about ancient civilizations could all be wrong. We can only move forward based on the information and artifacts that we already have. There's more out there waiting to be found. We just have to figure out how to use one map to find another. And then another. And then another. Curious, isn't it? I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.